The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 65. Psalm 65. The New Testament reading is Luke 8, 26 through 39. This will be our sermon text. Psalm 65, Luke 8, 26 through 39. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 65. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, Luke 8, 26 through 39, and our sermon text. If you remember, Jesus has just sailed across the Sea of Galilee with His disciples. He calmed the wind and the waves by His authoritative word. And now we read in Luke 8.26, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met Him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time He had worn no clothes, and He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, They fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed 
and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of the word of God today. Do not forget the question that the disciples of Jesus asked after He calmed the wind and the raging sea with the power of His authoritative Word. In Luke 8.25 we are told that the disciples said to one another, Who then is this that He commands even winds and water and they obey Him? Who then is this was their question. And I do believe that we are to carry that question with us into the passage that we are considering today and into the next one also. Who then is this that He commands even winds and water and they obey Him? Who then is this that He commands even a legion of demons and they obey Him? Who then is this who has power and authority over sickness and death? You see, Jesus did not only tell His disciples about who He was, He also showed them. He shows us who He is by the miraculous deeds that He performed. Who then is Jesus? The answer is that He is the God-man. He is the Word of God, the second person of the triune God incarnate. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Christ woke from His sleep in the boat, commanded the wind and waves, And they obeyed Him. He showed Himself to be a true man and true God. And He he demonstrates the same in the passage that is before us today, wherein He displays His authority, even over the demons. Notice He did not cast them out in the name of God, but by His own authority. And even the demons knew who He was. They cried out through the man they possessed, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. You see, the demons knew who Jesus was. They knew He was the Son of the Most High God, that is to say, the Eternal Son of God incarnate. And brothers and sisters, you need to know who Jesus is. What is His nature? He is fully God and He is fully man. But who is He? Who is this Jesus? The answer is that He is the person of the eternal Son of God. And so I might ask you, is Christ your Savior? Is Christ your Lord? Do you trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins? Then you must grow in your knowledge of Him. And the Gospel of Luke is really a great help to us, for it answers the question, who then is this Jesus? Let us go now to our text for today. I have a few observations to make which will lead us to consider uh, Jesus' true identity. First, the passage that is open before us today does remind us that there is a spiritual and heavenly realm. This is, I think, the most basic observation to make about the text. This passage does remind us that there is a spiritual and heavenly realm. We who live in the West today are prone to forget this. 
Many in our culture live as if the natural world is all that there is. But the very first words of the Bible reveal otherwise. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as the scriptures unfold, it becomes clear that the earth refers to that visible realm, yes, even the microscopic realm that God created in the beginning. And heavens refers to the realm that is presently and typically invisible to us, which God created in the beginning. You can see Colossians 1.16 for this interpretation. God manifests His radiant glory in the heavenly realm. The angels are spiritual beings who were created by God to dwell in the heavenly realm and to worship and serve God always. And as you probably know, the Bible teaches that there was a rebellion in the heavenly realm. Some angels kept their place by submitting themselves to God, but many rebelled and were cast down. Satan is the chief of these fallen angels, but he is not the only one. Under him are demons who do his bidding. And so in the heavenly spiritual realm, there is a kingdom of darkness and there is also a kingdom of light. We are reminded of the spiritual realm, of the fallen angels, and of their dark work when we read in verses 26 through 27, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So then it should be clear to all that the heavenly realm and the earthly realm, though distinct, They do interact. God relates to His creation, doesn't He? God who dwells in heaven, God who manifests His glory in the heavenly realm, He does relate to His creation. He reveals Himself to the children of men. His elect angels are ministering spirits. They do minister to God's people even presently. And Satan and his demons do also seek to exercise control or dominion on earth and over man. These truths permeate the entirety of the Holy Scriptures, and they are certainly present in the passage that is before us today. The country of the Gerasenes, also called the Gadarenes, was located on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Most most of the commentators that I have read say this was Gentile territory. One claimed that it was Jewish. I've always believed that it was Gentile territory. Territory. One reason being the herd of pigs mentioned near the end of this passage. Pigs, as you know, under the Old Covenant law of Moses, were deemed to be unclean animals. So I think this was Gentile territory. Christ decided to, to sail across the sea with His disciples and to go to this land. I take that to be Gentile territory. And we are told that when Jesus stepped out on the land, there met Him a man from the city who had demons. When Matthew tells this story in chapter 8 of his gospel, he mentions two men who were demon-possessed. Luke and Mark, in Mark 5, focus their attention only on this one man. I'm sure there were two, but Mark and Luke focus their attention on this one demon-possessed man in particular. Luke says that he had demons. Later we are told that many demons had entered him, that is verse 30, When Jesus asked the demon to reveal its name, the man said, Legion. In the Roman army, a legion was a group of about 6,000 soldiers. 
I don't take this to mean that we should think that there were 6,000 demons in this man. The point is clear though. This man had many demons. In verse 36, this man is referred to as one who had been demon-possessed. The Greek can also be translated as demon-oppressed, or we might say demonized. And there are at least four questions that come to mind, maybe many, many more than this. I originally had three questions to address, and then in a wonderful conversation I had with David yesterday about this sermon, he brought another to my attention. So, I told him this morning, it's your fault that the sermon is longer than it was originally, right? Four questions come to mind. One, what is demon possession or oppression? And really, I don't think it matters what term you use, so long as you have in mind a man or woman coming under the strong influence or control of demons. The text says that we that this man had many demons and they had entered this man. The text also says that at times he would be driven by the demons into the, de- into the desert. So then demon possession is a very particular and extreme thing. All who do not belong to Christ do indeed belong to the evil one. Did you hear that statement? All who do not belong to Christ, all who do not have faith in Christ, do indeed belong to the evil one. The scriptures teach that all people are either in Christ's kingdom or they are in Satan's kingdom. Satan tempts all men. He deceives men. He seeks to destroy men. But please hear me, this does not always or often result in demon possession or oppression. Clearly there is a difference between the non-believing Jews to whom Jesus spoke in John 8.44 saying, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, and this demon-possessed man of the Gerasenes. Both were in a state of bondage to the evil one, but not in the same way, not to the same degree. Clearly, not everyone who is deceived by Satan is possessed by demons. So to be demon-possessed or oppressed or to be demonized as this man was... Uh, here in Luke chapter 8, this man of the Gerasenes, uh, means that demons have entered and the person is under their control. A second question that comes to mind is, how did this man come to be demon-possessed? The text does not say. But if we were to consider other texts of Scripture, I think it is safe to assume that he opened himself up to the demonic through sin, perhaps through the worship of idols, which is sometimes called the worship of demons. You may see Leviticus 17.7 and Deuteronomy 32.16, along with Psalm 106.36-37 for, for this kind of speech. Or perhaps he engaged in things like sorcery or witchcraft. Galatians 5.20 and Deuteronomy 18.10 may be consulted for Things like sorcery or witchcraft, they do exist. Uh, The biblical perspective on demons or on demon worship, sorcery and witchcraft, is not that they are not real. Did you hear me? The biblical perspective is not that they are not real, but rather that they are to be avoided, that they are to be rejected and ultimately rebuked in Jesus' name, lest men and women open themselves up to that which is dark and evil. They are to be rejected. They are to be avoided because they are false and untrue. 
This does not mean that they are not real. A third question that comes to mind is this. Though it is clear that men and women were sometimes demon-possessed in Jesus' day, can men and women be demon-possessed today? And I believe the answer is yes, but that we tend to not see it as frequently in our society. And I can think of three possible reasons for this. There are probably more. One, I do wonder if demon possession is more limited now that Christ has accomplished our redemption, having defeated the evil one through His life, death, and resurrection. We cannot forget that Christ won the decisive victory over Satan at the cross. Christ bound Satan then. You may see Matthew 12, 29, Mark 3, 27, and Revelation 20 uh, to learn more about this. Christ cast down the accuser of the brethren then. Now, mind you, this does not mean that Satan and his minions are no longer active at all. Uh, The Scriptures warn those living under the New Covenant era that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is 1 Peter 5.8. But there was some kind of binding or restraining that occurred at Christ's first coming, nonetheless. We must account for these passages of Scripture that speak of it. There was some kind of binding or restraining that occurred at Christ's first coming. Revelation 20 says that He was bound so that He would not deceive the nations any longer. Restrained so that the gospel of the kingdom might go forth and prevail, you see. So that disciples could be made of every tongue, tribe, and nation. So that disciples could be made of all the earth. There was some kind of binding, conquering, restraining uh, that took place at Christ's first coming. And so perhaps demonic possession is less prevalent in the world as a result. Secondly, it may be that demonic possession occurs less frequently in our naturalistic and radically secular society. Here is what I mean by this. It seems that Satan has won the victory over the minds of many in our culture by blinding them to the reality of the spiritual realm. He has duped millions into believing that the material world is all that exists. And so, men and women in our society think little of angels, demons, and God. And given the success of this tactic, why would the evil one even draw attention to the reality of the spiritual realm? Connected to this, it may be that demon possession occurs more frequently today in societies where men and women open themselves up to dark spiritual forces as they engage in idolatrous worship, sorcery, and witchcraft. Thirdly, it may be that demon possession is more prevalent in our society than we realize, given our tendency to explain every ailment and malady, every ailment and malady in natural, scientific, and medical terms. Now, I really do not want to be misunderstood here on this point. I am not at all proposing that every ailment of body and mind should be blamed on demons. I am not saying that. No, even Christ in His earthly ministry distinguished between those who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. He did heal many who were ill. They had physical maladies, but He did also cast out many demons. 
He touched many who were ill and healed them of their physical maladies. And we must recognize this. And neither am I proposing that mental illness is not real. Certainly it is. There are oftentimes physiological explanations for the mental and emotional troubles that we face. But here I am simply acknowledging that in our modern, secular, and naturalistic society, we tend to err on the extreme side of blaming every ailment and problem we face on the physiological. And many have forgotten, it seems, that we are spiritual beings, that there is a spiritual realm, and that there is a spiritual battle that rages over the hearts and minds of men and women. A fourth question that comes to mind is, can a true Christian be demon-possessed? And the answer is certainly not. Those united to Christ by faith have their sins forgiven, Acts 10.43. They are filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 13.52. They have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. And so true Christians... They walk in the light, not the darkness. They are to walk by the Spirit, not the flesh. Though a true believer can never be demon-possessed or oppressed, the devil and his minions, they are still our adversary. The evil one tempts. The evil one seeks to discourage. The evil one utters lies. He seeks to divide and conquer. But we do have victory over him in Jesus' name. So those four questions came immediately to mind. Perhaps you can think of others, and I'd be happy to talk with you about them if if you have them. But here is something that I want you to notice about our text. It is just plain. It is clear. Notice how very cruel Satan and his demons are. Notice where they lead those who come under their power. Satan is a very cruel and harsh taskmaster. Following after him will lead only to darkness, despair, and death. The scriptures tell us that this demon-possessed man wore no clothes, but went around exposed to the elements. He was driven by these demons from his home. Can you imagine it? The text tells us he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. In this way, the demons robbed this man of life and caused him to dwell in a place of darkness and death. From time to time, the man would be bound by the people of the town, but with superhuman strength, it seems, he would break the chains and be driven into the desert by the demon. And so I simply say to you, look at where following after Satan leads. We are either in Christ or we are under Satan's domain. Those who have been demon-possessed in the past or in the present, I think, serve as a kind of testimony to where following after Satan will lead you. Satan is a cruel master. Spiritually speaking, he will leave all who follow after him unclothed, naked, and exposed. He will drive those who follow after him further and further away from their home with God. He will rob them of their sanity as he leads them further and further down the path of darkness and death. Friends, as I have said already, there are only two options. We are all either following after God or we are following after Satan. And granted, not all who follow after Satan are demon-possessed, but some are. And perhaps the Lord has permitted this to show His people how cruel a taskmaster the evil one truly is so that they would turn from their sin and to Christ. And Christ is a very kind master, as we will see. So we have been reminded of the spiritual realm. More than this, we have been reminded of the dark forces that exist there 
And now let us consider Jesus and the authority that he possesses over the forces of darkness and death. Verse 27 tells us when Jesus had stepped out on land, he met him a man, there met him a man from the city who had demons. You almost get the impression that Jesus traveled across the sea for the purpose of meeting this man and for the purpose of confronting these demons. And indeed, I think that is the case. He was on the other side of the sea. He said to his disciples, Let's take a little trip. Let's go. Let's sail across the sea to the other side. They did not know that they would encounter this great storm. They did not know why they were going, but I think it becomes clear now. Perhaps Jesus took them for this very purpose, to go into Gentile territory and to display His power and authority over the demonic that kept this man and many like him in bondage. In verse 28 we read, When the man saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before Him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. So it was the man who spoke, but I think we are to see that it was the demon perhaps the chief of the legion of demons, who spoke through him. This is a strange text, isn't it, brothers and sisters? But it is an important one. Notice this. The demons knew who Jesus was. When on the sea the disciples asked, Who then is this, that the wind and waves obey him? That was the disciples' question. Who then is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? And when they got to the shore, the demons themselves answered the question. Again, we are told that the man cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Who is Jesus? He is the Son of the Most High God. In other words, He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune God. How did they know Him? How did these demons know Him? Well, let's just say they have a history. It was through the eternal Son that these angels who fell were created. Think of it. It was through the Son, the eternal Son, that these angels who fell were created. It was against the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that they rebelled. And it was the eternal Son incarnate who would crush them under His feet. The incarnation was a brand new thing. These demons did not have much of a history with the man, Jesus, but the Son of the Most High God, Him they knew. And they knew what He was up to. He became incarnate to defeat them, to crush them, to judge them eternally. And so they cried out, What have you to do with me? And a little bit later, I beg you, do not torment me. It was after Jesus asked for the name of the demon and received the answer, Legion, that they begged Him not to command them to depart into the abyss. What is the abyss? To understand what the abyss is, I think you must first know what Sheol, or Hades, is. Sheol, which is also called Hades, is a spiritual place of punishment and torment filled with the souls of sinners who have died in their sin. When men and women die, their bodies go into the grave, and their souls go either into the blessed presence of God in heaven, or to the torments of Sheol, or Hades, often we refer to this place as hell. 
And what makes the difference concerning whether or not a person in the soul goes to heaven or to hell? It is Christ who makes the difference. Those who in this life turn from their sins and trust in Christ will go to heaven when they die. Those who die apart from Christ and in their sins will go to Sheol or Hades. On the last day, when Christ returns, there will be a great resurrection. And by this we mean that bodies will be raised from the graves, all will. And Hades will give up the souls imprisoned within to be reunited with the body. And these whole persons on the last day will stand before God Almighty to be judged. This is what Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 describes. Here now the text. John says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I read this text simply to show you that Sheol, or Hades, is the temporary place of punishment where the souls of the wicked go when they die, but it is also a place of imprisonment and torment for the demons. The abyss is the deepest pit of Sheol, or Hades. It is where Satan is bound now so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And this is what Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. It is actually the word for abyss in the Greek that is behind the phrase bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, that is to say into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. This passage that I have just read to you, Revelation 21 through 3, is not about the future, it's about the past. It's about the work that Christ did at his first coming. Satan is bound now so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. If you would like some help understanding this, I would be happy to show it to you, though it is beyond the scope of the sermon for today. The abyss is a place of temporary imprisonment and torment for Satan and his demons. In 2 Peter 2.4, if what I just said troubles you, just listen carefully to this, please. In 2 Peter 2.4, this place is called Tartarus. And there we read, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, that is to say Tartarus, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Let me just ask you this. In 2 Peter 2.4, which I have just read, is Peter speaking of something that will happen in the future? Is this merely future? That the angels will be cast into hell, into Tartarus, and bound with chains there? Is that what he's saying? Let me read it again. For if God did not, past tense, spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, etc., etc., 
Peter is speaking of something that has already happened. It happened in the past. There has been a kind of binding, a kind of restraining uh, that has already taken place. Uh, Indeed, demons have already been bound and they are being punished now. They have been committed to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Jude 1.6 teaches the same thing. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, He, God, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. It's, it's plain as day. Uh, that there is a sense in which Satan and his minions have already been bound. Is he active still? Is his kingdom still present? Does he seek to deceive and to overthrow? Yes, of course. But there is a kind of restraint, a kind of conquering that has already taken place, a kind of bondage that Satan and the demons have been placed under. So much more could be said about this, but I simply want you to see the principle The final place of punishment for all of God's enemies, of angels and men, will be the lake of fire. Sheol, or Hades, is the temporary place of punishment for the souls of men who pass from this earth apart from Christ. And fallen angels are imprisoned there too. They have been cast into the abyss, that is to say, into the pit, which is called Tartarus, a place of gloomy darkness. Again, I could hear the critics now, but Satan is still active. He prowls around like a roaring lion, Yes, this is true. But we must also account for all of these passages that speak of the binding of Satan at Christ's first coming and of the imprisonment of demons in the abyss before and during Christ's earthly ministry. 2 Peter 2, 4 says that demons were cast into Tartarus when they sinned. Jude 6 also speaks of a binding of demons that took place long ago. And notice this. The demons who revealed themselves to Jesus as legion They clearly thought that the abyss was a place that Jesus Christ could cast them into at that very moment. Are you following me? They begged Jesus to not be cast there. Not in the future, but on that day. In other words, what I am saying to you is that these demons, they were not bound in the abyss yet. So take that into your your mind. They were not bound in the abyss yet. They knew about the abyss, and they thought that Christ could cast them into the abyss at that very moment in time, and they begged Him not to. Now, I will admit, there are mysteries here that I do not fully understand. I will admit that to you. Um, As your pastor, there are mysteries uh, that I do not fully understand. Some of that might be due to my own ignorance. Also, some of that might be due to the fact that not everything is revealed to us. And so these things will just remain a mystery to us until Christ returns to make all things new. But when all that scriptures have to, the Scriptures have to say on this subject are considered, one is left with the impression that the overthrow of Satan's kingdom has been and will continue to be progressive. It seems to me that with the passing of time, And with every advancement in the accomplishment of our redemption, there is more and more damage done to the kingdom of Satan. There is more ground taken, if you will. There is more conquering and binding of the kingdom of darkness by the kingdom of light. Certainly the greatest advancements were made at Christ's first coming through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And the Apostle reminds us that the end will one day come when Christ delivers the kingdom to the Father, 
after destroying every rule and authority and power, for he must reign until all has been put under his feet. Let me say that again. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So I think there is a kind of progressive conquering of Satan and his kingdom that has been going on since the fall of Satan and uh, the demons and man's fall into sin after them. I think there has been a kind of progressive conquering that has been taking place. But the greatest, the greatest defeat came to Satan and to his minions at the time of Christ's first coming. It was then that Christ won the victory through His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand. In verse 31 of our text, we are told that the demons begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. And in verse 32, we learn that the demons made a strange request, strange to my ears at least. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged Him to let them enter these, so He gave them permission. I cannot say that I fully understand what's going on here. It seems that these demons needed somewhere to go. They knew that Christ was evicting them from the man of the Gerasenes. They did not want to go to the abyss, and so they requested that Christ allow them to enter the filthy and unclean swine. And Christ permitted it. Matthew 12, 43-45 is also mysterious, but it seems to agree with this text. Listen to it. There Christ says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, so he is here referring to the act of, of uh, the, the expelling of demons, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now me reading this text probably raises more questions than it answers. Uh, but I, I took note of this little phrase at the very beginning of it. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And so it seems that these demons, this legion of demons that was about to be cast out of this man, they needed somewhere to go. They didn't want to be cast into the abyss. They said, there's a herd of pigs, let us go there. And what happened next got everyone's attention. Verse 33 says, The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. What a strange and frightening scene. Mark, in his gospel, tells us there are about 2,000 pigs in this herd. So can you picture it? This is a strange and frightening scene. You can see why the people of the village were terrified, and they eventually said to Jesus, it might be time for you to go home. It was nice to visit, <laughs> but the time has come for, for you to leave. They did not understand Jesus. They did not understand this. They wanted Him to go after what had just happened. This is a strange and frightening scene, but the question we must ask is why? Why did Christ permit the demons to enter these pigs? And why did they rush down the hillside into the water and drown? The commentaries I read all seem to assume that it was the demons who drove the pigs into the sea. 
As it pertains to the question of why, they suggest it was because the demons were very cruel and only wished to do damage to God's creation. That's the kind of idea that I came across in the commentaries. And I don't like to say things that I don't ever find in commentaries. Uh, my, my fellow pastor Ryan is here and he's going to witness me doing that very thing. I, I couldn't find this anywhere in the commentaries, but as I, as I thought about uh, this, this text... Uh, the thought occurred to me. The text does not say that the demons drove the swine into the sea. I think that is assumed. What if it was Christ who drove the swine into the sea? And if it was Christ who drove these demon-possessed pigs into the sea, the answer to the question of why becomes more clear. The demons, remember, they begged to not be cast into the abyss. Please don't cast us into the abyss. And it seems to me that their request was in fact denied. That seems to be the message that comes through. It seems to me that their request was denied. But it was denied in such a way so as to make it plain to all who witnessed what had happened that their request was denied. The depths of the sea have always symbolized the abyss. The depths of the sea in the story of Jonah symbolized the depths of Sheol. After Jonah was cast into the stormy sea and swallowed by that great fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and He answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me, etc. That is Jonah 2, 1 through 3. And here I am simply drawing your attention to the fact that in the Scriptures, the sea signifies Sheol and the deep pit of the abyss. Put it all together, brothers and sisters. Not long before this encounter with the demoniac on land, Jesus saved His disciples from the abyss by calming the wind and the waves with His Word. They were out on the sea. They were fearful. They thought they were going to sink where? Into the abyss. Master, Master, we are perishing, they said. And He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. Christ saved His disciples who were with Him in that little ark from perishing in the abyss of the sea. And once on land, Christ demonstrated His power and authority even over the demons. They begged to be spared from the abyss. And as I have said, it appears to me that the request was denied. And Christ wanted everyone to know it. He permitted those filthy demons to enter those filthy pigs. And He drove them into the depths of the sea in order to demonstrate to all that He has the power and authority to cast Satan and his demons into the abyss of Sheol now and into the lake of fire on the day of judgment. He demonstrated this. These are spirits. They are invisible spirits. Had Christ simply cast them into the abyss by the word of His power, apart from this episode involving the swine and they're running down into the sea, no one would have seen it, but everyone saw it, didn't they? They saw clearly that Christ had this power. For the man was freed from the demons 
And they saw them go into the swine, and they saw the swine do a most strange thing, that is to run down, into, down the hillside and drown themselves in the water of the sea. And so in this way, Christ displays His power and His glory. When the demons entered the swine, and then when the swine rushed into the sea, it was a visible demonstration of the power of Christ over Satan and his demons. He has the power to cast them out, and He has the power to cast them in to the abyss. And I say to you, is this not a picture of the redemption that Christ has accomplished? He came to save those who trust in Him from the abyss of hell. We have just witnessed a picture of that in the crossing of the sea and the storm, the calming of the stormy waves and the wind. He has saved His people from the abyss of hell, and He has also come to conquer every evil principality and power. Let us briefly return to the man out of whom these demons were driven. Verse 34, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and what did they find? They found the man from whom the demons had gone, and sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The description of this man who had been delivered from such terrible oppression is marvelous. It is a marvelous description, isn't it? No, lo- no longer is he, is he fighting or fleeing. He is sitting at the feet of Jesus. He is calm and he, has, he is at peace. The demons are no longer his Lord. Christ is. Furthermore, the text says that he is clothed. Yes, Christ does clothe and cover all who come to Him by faith. He clothes them with His righteousness. He frees them from bondage to sin and Satan. He subdues them so that they honor Him as Lord. He reconciles them to God through Himself so that they are at peace and they are at home. He clothes them with His righteousness and He renews their minds so that they might think rightly about God and their relationship to Him in this world. That is what Christ did for this man once possessed by demons. No longer was He fighting and being driven into the wilderness. No longer was He tormented by that cruel taskmaster, Satan. Instead, here He is sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed at peace and in His right mind. And here we have a picture Here we have a wonderful picture of the redemption that Christ has worked for us. He delivers us from the domain of darkness, thanks be to God. It is no wonder that the man begged to go with Jesus when Jesus got into the boat to return. Those who have been delivered from the domain of darkness by Jesus want nothing more than to be with Him. But Christ sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Isn't that marvelous? And that is what this man did. He did not return with Jesus. That was not God's will for him. But he returned to his home and he testified to all that Christ had done for him. And so there he was, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, even in far-off places. So, it was even during the earthly ministry of Jesus that the gospel of the kingdom began to spread out from Jerusalem and Judea and even to the ends of the earth. Who then is this who commands the wind and waves, and they obey Him? Who then is this who has the power to cast even a legion of demons out of a man and into the abyss, 
His name is Jesus. And he is no ordinary man, but is the person of the eternal Son of God incarnate. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the only mediator between God and man. To be, lit, to be delivered from the domain of darkness and to be saved from the abyss of hell, one must turn from their sins and trust in Him. And the question is, have you? Have you? And if you have, can you see what Christ has saved you from? Can you see it? I hope that you are growing in your understanding and appreciation of this. And I do pray that this passage would be a help to you. Can you see His deliverance? Granted, the condition of this man of the Gerasenes was very extreme. Not many have been as oppressed by demons to the degree that he was. But all who are not in Christ do in fact belong to the kingdom of Satan. And those in Christ have been delivered. And we are to say, thanks be to God. For He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Let us bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, strange as it seems to us upon first reading, and for the insights it brings concerning the victory that Christ has won, not only so that He might atone for sin and cover our sins, but even the victory that He has won in the spiritual realm. We thank you that indeed Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who has stomped on the serpent's head. He has worked our redemption. Our trust is in Him. I pray, O oh God, that You would strengthen our faith. Help us to walk in the light, for You have set us free from the darkness. Do this for our good and Your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.